0: I invite you to turn in your copies of God's holy and inspired word back to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, once again, we are going to read verses 10 through 16. Heavenly vision for a prophetic presence. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, help us to listen today and help our consciences to be sensitive to the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit that we would be willing to let your word filter us through it rather than us filtering your word through our preferences and our preconceptions. Help us to hear and help us to value and love. For you have provided this to us that we may grow and be strengthened in our faith And may participate well in the amazing privilege of being part of the ongoing mission of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Plurus Ephesemmer. Quotions metamer avobus semen as sanguis christianorum It's one of the most famous phrases in Christian history. And I'm sure you're you're all thinking, "Well, of course." It is often translated as the blood of the saints. Or I'm sorry, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Now that one probably does ring a little bit of a bell. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It's probably more faithfully translated, we multiply when you reap us. The blood of Christians is seed. These are words written by Tertullian around the end of the 2nd century, or at the beginning of the 3rd century, depending on how you date it. It was a time in which the the church in the Roman Empire was illegal, and as a result, there was actual persecution that would take place in different pockets at different times throughout the Roman Empire. Often it was depending on the local government as to what level of persecution was taking place, but Across the entire empire it was illegal to be a Christian. The Christians were called cannibals. That's right. The Christians were called cannibals because when the non-Christians were you know listening and and having conversations they they were hearing things like, well, you know, we, we meet together on Sunday and we eat the body and drink the blood of Jesus Christ. So they were considered cannibals. They were considered atheists. The early church was considered atheists because they only believed in one God. Why would you limit it to one when we have all of these amazing options available to us? Why would you limit Jesus as Lord when clearly Caesar is? They were atheists. They were cannibals. It also didn't help that they referred to one another as brother and sister, right? Oh, that's my brother in Christ. Oh, that's my sister in Christ. Well, if y'all are brothers and sisters, what's this love feast thing you do? So that raised some eyebrows, as as you can imagine. The reason I'm saying this is that the early church had a real challenge in front of them. They had very much what we talked about last week in terms of an image problem. The image of the early church was not a pleasant one to those outside of the church. To the Jews, they were heretics who should be killed. To the Greco-Romans, they were oddballs who should be pushed to the side. Unless they get a little too pushy and a little too public, then we'll put them to death as well. That was the existence of the early church. That was the existence of the church in the first 300 years of its existence. And at the time in which all of this was happening, the church exploded in growth. The church grew and grew and grew. Even at the time of the writing of the New Testament, at the writing of, of many of Paul's letters, which would have been in the mid-60s of the first century, they were already known as, as, as those who were turning upside down the world. Because so many people were coming out of the Greco-Roman different worship structures and and faith options. And there were people coming out of Judaism. And there were God-fearers who were Gentiles who had converted to Judaism who were now embracing Jesus Christ. And there were people coming to Christ left and right and left and right. And all of this while being illegal, all of this while being shunned and reviled, all of this while being persecuted and what really drew the ire of the of those who were part of the greco-roman culture was the virtues that Jesus has just laid out for us in the beatitudes virtues of humility virtues of serving others instead of yourself the the virtues of 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 righteousness like hungering and thirsting for actual righteousness and as jesus described it there if you remember not that you're hungering and thirsting that your neighbor will be righteous it's that you would be righteous right it's really easy to want the person next to you You know, send up a prayer for them. God, they could really use some righteousness today, right? Right? If you drove to church with someone, you probably prayed that prayer. (laughs) It's real easy to pray that, but what Jesus is saying is we, within ourselves, have to hunger and crave righteousness for us. But these virtues that Jesus has just laid out, in the Beatitudes, as the early church was embracing those virtues and learning to express those virtues in in morality and in ethics as they were doing it within themselves, they grew and they were strengthened. And their faith was the kind of faith that would lead them to, to enter into the judgments rendered by Caesar and would face the lions of the Colosseum with bravery. Now that's faith. That is not whining and complaining. Lord, it should be easier. If if you're really on the throne, and if your truth really is true, then we shouldn't be suffering, we should be ruling. The early church, they embraced the virtues of Christ as laid out in the Beatitudes, and then tried to live to embody those virtues in the way that they lived within themselves first, and then with how they lived with their neighbor. Now, part of the law, and we're going to get to this, Lord willing, next week, Right? that summary of the law that Jesus has given us is that we are to love God and love our neighbor. And so the very nature of what it means to be a member of the household of God is that the church does not exist in isolation. The church exists as a neighbor. But as we have been hinting at and talking about, we live at a time where the church, which is a heavenly colony on earth, we live in a land that is not our own. We live in a world that is not our ultimate home. We are sojourners. We are pilgrims. And even here, the question then is, how do we relate to those that we live amongst when we are the pilgrims and the sojourners? Well, God gave some wisdom, as, as we read from Jeremiah at the beginning of the service. As he was sending his people into exile, what did he tell them? Now, when you get over to Babylon make sure you form political groups and caucuses and put together lobbyists and make sure that you're able to you know try to take things over for me while you're in Babylon. No, what he said was you go over there and you live out what I've already called you to live out here, you do it there. And when you do it there, you don't do it for the purpose of harming The Babylonians, you do it for the purpose of being a blessing to them, regardless of how the Babylonians receive it. How did the Babylonians receive it? Well, some tried to put them to death. Nebuchadnezzar himself, right? Did that change their calling? Try to be a good neighbor. Try to be a blessing until they, you know, revile you or until they try to throw you into a golden furnace because you won't bow down. Before they throw you into a lion's den because you went up to your room in private and prayed. Follow my instructions until that starts happening. And then once that starts happening, now we'll, we'll change the game up. No. And the question before the church right now is how do we relate to our neighbor given the fact and the reality that we now live in a post-Christian America? Is the calling to recover the good old days? Well, for one, our theology doesn't really allow for good old days, right? But are we try, is the goal now of the church, as we relate to those around us, to try to recover something of the past? Has the mission changed? Has the instructions of God changed? Have the values that Jesus has communicated, have those values changed? Has taking up the cross to follow Christ, has that Changed? Is anything different about who we are and how we are to live and exist as neighbors in this now hostile culture? Has anything changed? And the answer is no. What Jesus tells us here in this passage that we've been looking at it gives us three really important um, uh, uh, instructions about how to understand how we are to relate to the world in which we live. Not how to relate to the world that we wish it was, but how do we relate to the world as it is. And what Jesus tells us here is, is that one, we are to live with a heavenly mindedness. We are to live as those who realize that everything that happens to us here on earth is only preparing us for what is ultimate and what is coming when Jesus returns. And as we talked about several weeks ago, when we have that, that beatific vision of Christ, where we see Christ, where we are made to be like Christ, and then we enter into the fullness of the perceiving of the eternal God that you and I are not yet ready to have. And when we enter into the fullness of the enjoyment of the glory of God forevermore, what we go through now is preparing us for that. And what Jesus says is to go through the preparation well is we go through that by focusing on what is coming. This, this is not what Johnny Cash sang about. right? This is, this is not the lady who is so heavenly minded. She's of no earthly good. And if you haven't heard the song, it's a fun one, even though he's wrong. Or maybe he's right about her. This is not a pie in the sky, just, you know, focus on on what's coming and just try to escape right now, right? Because we we are not called to escape. We're not called to put our our heads in the grounds. We are called to be good neighbors who seek the good of those around whom we live, regardless of if they appreciate our efforts. And Christ tells us, You set your minds on the fullness of what is coming so that you don't look for that fullness right now. And that's what everyone in this room does, especially right here. I want the fullness now. I want it today. I don't want to have to replace. Where's where's Wilson? I saw him here. I don't want to have to replace fascia boards on my house because they're leaking. I don't want to have to fix the car. I don't want to have to get a root canal. I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want all these different difficulties and and the challenges. And when you add to that now... That, that as we saw last week, that, that the church has a serious image problem where not only are our values disregarded, but some people consider our values now evil. I may not want that to be the case, but it is. And what Jesus says is the more that our faith grabs hold of what is ultimate the more that our faith grabs hold of what is transcendent, the more strength we have to go through the temporary. Now, why is that important right now? One of the reasons that the culture is where it is And this is, if you read the philosophers, if you read the new atheists, or hear, you listen to them talk. One of the results of the development of science and technology and all the cool stuff that has come from all that. One of the effects is that more and more people have embraced the worldview that the universe is all that exists. It's a closed system. And just like space itself is cold and dark and and meaningless in and of itself, that that's what life is. We are cogs in a machine. And there there isn't any transcendent reality, which means there isn't any transcendent purpose. And so what do we do? Well, we determine how to bring purpose to our own life. The philosophy of Friedrich Nietzsche has taken over this culture. And the people that we are living around, if they are embracing that more and more and more, they are embracing the theology of John Cougar Mellencamp. Did you know that John Cougar Mellencamp was a theologian? Oh yeah, life goes on even after the thrill of living is gone. Our culture, because of the philosophy of Friedrich Nietzsche and this idea that the world is cold and purposeless and meaningless in and of itself, and so that we have to create that for ourselves, this is what has led to, to this, this radical shift in the the individualism that we are seeing expressed uh, in terms of, I'm going to live for my pleasure and I get to define what makes me happy. And no one can tell me otherwise because there is no transcendent reality that I have to compare or contrast my ideas against. And just like all the dystopian novels of the, of the 30s and the 40s and the 50s, as society breaks down, it breaks down in a very specific moral ways. And it breaks down because once there is nothing transcendent and all you have is today, All I have is what's right in front of me. All I have is what I can see, touch, smell, taste, or hear. Then when your world gets shrunk and reduced to that, what the philosophers are now saying, what the atheist philosophers are now saying, is that one of the unintended negative consequences is that the world for people has become disenchanted. Disenchanted. There is no wonder anymore. There is nothing to be in awe of anymore. People are reduced to what they feel. People are reduced to what they want. And here's the problem there. God has made everyone in his image. And he has made us as lovers. He has made us as wanters. He has made us to find our satisfaction in him. But what sin has done and it has twisted it. But that twisting has not obliterated the desire. And so what we find is that people who were created in the image of God to be pursuers of truth, pursuers of goodness. Pursuers of beauty still are pursuing all those things, but, but their faculties are twisted and broken and they don't work right, which leads people to look for love in all the wrong places, right? There is this twisting, the, and the, so the faculties are still operating And the object that is the only thing that can satisfy is the source of truth, goodness, and beauty, which is God himself, but the sin, it has separated them from the very objects of their desires, and so their desires are taking them anywhere and everywhere other than God. And what we see is the effects in our culture right now. And this is why it's important, as, as was just prayed, that we are approaching our neighbors in humility. What is happening, what we see in our neighbors, what we see in the developments of culture are God-given desires that have been twisted by sin, sin-saturated faculties. And what it should do is it should lead to us being broken over that for them. They have something driving them that can never be satisfied as long as they are looking anywhere and everywhere other than God. So what role do you and I play as the church within this situation? Well, Jesus tells us. When we live with a heavenly mindedness and an identity that is rooted and grounded and anchored, as the writer of Hebrews says, anchored in the heavenlies, then what happens is you and I, we get to serve as salt and light to the world. Now, salt has had many purposes, i think jesus narrows it here for us by saying when salt loses its flavor but what they would do in the in the middle east especially in the first century because there was no refrigeration is if you had meat raw meat if you wanted to you know keep it you had to put salt on it but even if you wanted to eat it in the moment You still had to put salt on it because, just like today, what do you have crawling around on the surface of of raw meat, even if you can't see it, right? Well, now we can see it because science, isn't that cool? So we can now see the nasty stuff that the salt is supposed to kill for us. But they had to put the salt on it to kill those microbiomes that that were harmful to people. They had to kill that off, and that's what the salt did. And then it provided a delicious flavor for, for eating the meat. The church is supposed to be salt within a culture whose God-given faculties are broken. We are salt, meaning that there is a a purpose that we provide as we live in Babylon. We get to provide a a preserving um, presence that life doesn't have to be reduced to what I want and reduced to what I feel and reduced to a a cold, closed uh, system of cause and effect. We get to be a a preservative and we get to be a flavoring of the heavenly places. That the church, when the church is, is living out the virtues of Christ and fulfilling its calling of Christ, the church's presence is preservative. It provides a, an assistance to, that, the, that the, the sin-soaked faculties of sinners is not the only reality in this world. But Jesus warns us, even though this is who we are and the calling that we have, we don't always live up to it. And if we don't live up to it, we lose our purpose and meaning in this world. When salt loses its power, what do you do with it? Well, it's not good for anything now. So you toss it. Have we lost our power? I think we have. Now, I don't mean the power of the Spirit, I don't mean any of that. We've lost our voice. Our community does not care anymore. And one of the reasons that we have lost our voice is because we haven't been functioning as salt within the church, let alone functioning as salt for the world. The church is rife with sin and scandal. And where it has been so easy to point to to our sinful neighbors and to say, well, you're not righteous and you're wrong here and you're wrong there and you're wrong there. They now can point right back at us and say, yeah, well, guess what? So are y'all. Are they wrong? No, they're not. We have become utterly worldly. If you remember from the very beginning, the virtues of the, the, the Beatitudes, we said, are inherently countercultural, but the church in America stopped being countercultural. We stopped being different. And one of the reasons is we were trying to get our neighbors to look like us, but not through the gospel. We were trying to get them to look like us through legislation through cultural pressure through boycotts but not through the power of the gospel we are not only to be salt we are light what does light do well it shines in darkness so that you can see it reveals what's going on what's 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 there and so just like salt it has it has this This negative effect in terms of it exposes, but it also has the positive effect of it allows you to see. And the church, once again, as the light of the world, we are those participating in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we are the light of the heavenly places that that is shining here in this dark generation. And so as we take on that heavenly identity and and we are cultivating that within ourselves, it allows us to serve as light here in this world whereby the church is able to show forth what is truth, what is goodness, what is beauty. I'm not going to say anything about truth because this is a Presbyterian church and we are steeped in truth. But the problem is we're not steeped in goodness and we're not steeped in beauty. But all three are part of how God reveals himself. Truth, goodness, and beauty. Do you know what the first attribute of God is that is listed in the Westminster Confession of Faith? Goodness doesn't start with truth. Now, many of you are starting to think, well, the catechism says, I'm talking about the very first sentence of the confession. Goodness. Do we talk about goodness in the reformed world? Sure, we do. No, none are good. That's what, how we talk about it. No one's good. Right? Well, because no one's good, then what has to happen? Well, I don't have to be good because no one's good. And yet the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience. Amen. Good job, Gideon. You notice goodness was listed in there? That the Spirit of God is producing the goodness of God within the people of God? Are you called to be good? Yes, because God's producing his goodness in you. But if your perspective and approach to goodness is that, oh, no one can be good. We're all just sinners. Then you don't live with an intention of trying to reveal the goodness of God to those who who crave goodness from God, but they don't even know how to find it. Well, guess where they can find it? They can find it in the place where God's producing it, and that's us. But if we are not focusing on our calling to cultivate and imbibe God's goodness, how are we going to show forth goodness? And so often we don't. And the truth, same is true about beauty. What the Sermon on the Mount is doing for us, beloved, It is helping us to see what the proper relationship that the church has to the world. And it shows us the proper posture that the church is to have towards the world. And it is not one of judgment and condemnation. It is a posture of being visitors who want to show forth that there is something better. There is a love that is better. There there is a goodness that is better. There is beauty that is better. The problem is not only has the world become disenchanted, beloved, I would say the church has as well. We are not enamored with our triune God. We don't live with a sense of awe, of, of awe a sense of awesomeness, a sense of wonder. A lot of times we live with a sense of what God owes us and what the world owes us. And that posture is what leads the church to say, do as I say, not as I do. Beloved, if we are going to help a disenchanted world taste and see that the Lord is good. It's going to be because you and I are feasting on our God ourselves. If we don't live with a sense of the transcendence of God and the superiority of the worth of the transcendent God and the transcendent world that God is bringing to us in Christ, if we don't live enchanted by that, then what do we have to offer those who are disenchanted and right now are living on, on an extreme high of personal pleasure? You see, we sang moments ago. I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy and life had led me to the grave. Sin promises joy and life but all it does at the end is kill. You and I as the church serve as a preservation, and we serve as a light, so that the true way of finding joy and life that God intended for us when he made us in his image and what he has secured for us by taking on our image and becoming man and suffering and dying and being raised from the dead, is that he is the light who has come. And in his light, we see the light of the way that leads to the ultimate joy and satisfaction and glory and enjoyment of God. but it starts with us. And beloved, this is why I preach the way I preach. And it angers some people. It is too easy. It is low-hanging fruit to come in here and say, well, did you see what the world did this week? Well, let's talk about how awful they are for a little bit so that we feel a little better about ourselves, so that we can go back out there and keep making demands of them. That's not biblical. Jesus has given us his virtues so that we look in the mirror at ourselves first. And through what we see is true in Christ, and from what we experience as the goodness and beauty of, of Christ, we then look out at the world and we say, they don't have it. And I would love for them to have a, a share and a participation in the goodness, beauty, and truth of God that I get to experience. And so I am going to change my posture towards the world. And I'm going to go out there in mercy and in service, and I'm going to say, there is something more. There is something better. There is something ultimate. Beloved, the calling that we have is through the cultivation of our heavenly mindedness that we will be salt and that we will be life. But the image problem that we have and the self-awareness gap that we have can only be fixed by reinvesting in what Jesus is teaching us here in the Sermon on the Mount. If we want to recover our voice, if we want to recover some sense of integrity, if we want to recover being being a place that should not be shunned or ignored, but a place where life is found, where goodness is experienced, where beauty is enjoyed, then what we do is we take the virtues of the Beatitudes and we start fleshing them out. As we look at... For the rest of this sermon, right, as we look at the proper way to, re- to interact with God's law, for the church to interact with God's law. As we look at the problems within the church with anger, lust, divorce, using, uh, misusing oaths and vows retaliation, dealing with loving our enemies, dealing with giving to the needy, dealing with prayer and fasting and laying up treasures in heaven and learning not to be anxious, not judging others, learning to persist in prayer, learning through the grace of our new identity in Christ to live out the golden rule. You see what's happening here? Everything that Jesus says the citizens of his kingdom should be known for I would say the church in America is not known for. And I don't mean not at all. I'm not one of those zero sum people. But as much as the church is still doing good, we have a long way to go to recover our voice to be salt and light. It's not going to be easy. And it's going to require us to look at ourselves first. And so, beloved, lay up for yourself the eternal treasures of the heavenly places. And rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, during times of transitions within history, it is always difficult to be willing to learn new things and new perspectives from your word. It can always be difficult to be willing to to open up our lives to your word in in deeper ways, in ways that we might have to be confronted and corrected. It can often be difficult to embrace ministry when it's not easy. The 50s are gone. The 60s and the 70s and the 80s, the 90s, they're gone, Lord. But you're not gone. And your truth still stands. Your goodness is st- still preserves. And your beauty reveals who you are. And so, Lord, help us to do an honest accounting of ourselves. Not for the purpose of beating ourselves up, thinking that that's what you want. But so that we can do the honest work of applying Christ to, to new areas of our lives and applying Christ to, to new ways of living within this world. Helping us to embrace the true countercultural nature of the virtues of Christ and the embodied ethics of His church. Father, help us to learn to be grateful. And to be joyful, not because things are going our way, but because you have made us part of your way in Jesus Christ. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name.